venture capital and philanthropy, investors with very different goals, right? What they have to learn from each other today on Off the Sidelines. Welcome back to Season 2, Episode 7 of Off the Sidelines, your guide to becoming a better investor. The world needs a new generation of great companies, and we need your help. I am your host, Chris Wink, the co-founder and CEO of Technically, which is your friendly neighborhood network of local technology and economic change news sites. Off the Sidelines is sponsored by Project Entrepreneur, a program by UBS. They want to strengthen the ecosystem for female founders and advance inclusive capital. That includes diversifying the pipeline of investors and supporters. Today, venture capital, the focus of this podcast, and philanthropy, a very different deployment of money. To get some perspective on the matter, I am bringing in my colleague, Sabrina Vervolius. Hello there, Sabrina. Why, hello, Chris. So, Sabrina, you are the editor of Generosity.org. That is a, a sister site to Technically. It focuses on the nonprofit and the philanthropic sector. This is true, yes? Yes, we're the good sister. At uh, <laughs> Generosity, we focus on who's doing good and on their social impact. Okay, this is good. You have the philanthropic side. I'm supposed to get the VC side. Let's start with some ground rules for today. What do we mean by venture capital and what are we going to mean by philanthropy? See, philanthropy is a big word that can mean super small individual contributions and corporate social responsibility and a lot of other things. It's too much for our purposes now. So today, we're really talking about foundations. That means both the big foundations you've heard of and the tens of thousands of family foundations that you may never have heard of. So with foundations, we're talking about tax-advantaged dollars that come out of a big pot of money that they hold and are typically used for investing in nonprofits to achieve some social good. So big pot of money that doesn't go out the door, VC, big pot of money that (laughs) goes out the door entirely. And and VC philanthropic foundations, they don't always cross paths. Yeah, VC wants to beat the stock market. With philanthropy, the federal tax benefits only come if they follow lots of rules, including pursuing some social good. And that could be anything from supporting the arts to advancing education or eradicating malaria. Okay. And then you and I got to talking, as we do in many of our conversations, and from you and I talking to, you know, smarty pants VCs and smarty pants philanthropists, we started talking that there are lots of lessons the two could be learning from each other, but we didn't think they always were. And that is the focus of today's Off the Sidelines episode. Yes. And yes, the heart of this episode is going to be a live conversation that we hosted at Generosity's Advanced Conference. We're generous. That's that why way. you're here. <laughs> yeah. We're generous. We let technically take up some space at our annual conference on advancing smarter impact. Yeah, you're, you're, you're too kind. That's what they tell me. But uh, we'll hear about the strengths and weaknesses of both industries and what each can learn from the other when it comes to making a greater financial and social impact. That's the goal. And I got the chance to lead this conversation to bright lights, one from VC, one from philanthropy. First, I got 
the extra special treat to hear from this fella. I think there's a lot to be said for the kind of investing that uh, that philanthropy does. If what you're trying to do is public good versus personal gain, I think we perform a terrific service when we offer risk capital for the public good in a disinterested way. That is our first guest. That is Alberto Ibarwin. Oh, wait a minute, uh, Chris. Yeah. That's Alberto Ibarwin. I think you're okay. tripping over the umlaut or the, the edices, as we <laughs> say in Spanish. But Ibarwin is the CEO of the Knight Foundation, so ponte las pilas when you say it. Oh, man, that not a good look for me. Thank you for the help, Sabrina, because, <laughs> yes, Alberto is quite influential. The Knight Foundation, Miami-based, they invest in arts, information, and community across the country. They've meaningfully shaped how fast and adaptive philanthropic foundations can move. They use the phrase that they are social investors. But this work, it hasn't always played out the way they wanted to. They've experimented and things have worked and things haven't. And that might remind you perhaps of, of VC and, and business market investing where you have an assumption and you try and you learn. Uh, so we wanted to get some of that perspective from the VC side of things. So to get that perspective, we brought in this guy. The thing that venture is exceptionally good at is underwriting big ideas. We optimize for or have a fairly efficient process for if someone is executing against a particular strategy, adding fuel to that fire to accelerate that opportunity and very quickly reach a goal that would otherwise seem unattainable, particularly in the time frame given. And that is Austin Clements. He's going to represent the VC side of our conversation. Austin, he's a Kauffman Fellow and the chair of Annenberg's, the Annenberg Foundation's Pledge LA program. And on top of all that, Austin is a managing partner at Slauson & Co., which is an early-stage VC firm. It's a new one. And they have a, a focus on inclusivity and diversity uh, for their deal flow. Let's pick up the conversation. Let's start with Austin, actually. He's talking here about why he feels philanthropy and VC sectors, but they're not actually that far removed from each other. This feels like a very natural conversation, and, it, and it's just mainly because I have what drives you in this industry. And, and for me, it's always been around economic inclusion philanthropy. Plenty of philanthropists doing a lot of the same thing. I mean, Alberto and his organization, I saw they just had an announcement yesterday around a, a Black innovation commitment in Miami, which which is huge. And so it's a lot of the same work. So there's plenty of overlap. I joined uh, Knight Foundation 15 years ago. And uh, one of the very first mini controversies internally that we had uh, was when I said to uh, the program staff that I, no matter what they thought they joined, I did not think I had joined a charity. Um, I see myself as a social investor in charity. There's nothing against charity. If it's your money, you put your hand in your pocket and you give it. And that's the end of the story. The, your, your reward will come in heaven. And what we're doing, we're taking a deal that John and Jack Knight made with the IRS 50, 60, 70 years ago, depending on the foundation. And we are making good on that deal. And the deal is we're going to take the money, the tax advantage money that they left, in our case, you know, a little over $2 billion, and we're going to do some good with it. We cannot afford uh, to think of ourselves as anything other than investors who are looking for impact. So, <laughs> so we want... We want impact, and there are lots of, we can talk about it if you want, but there are lots of consequences to that, not least of which is it raises for 
philanthropic grant making, it raises the importance of sustainability in a way that uh, direct charity, that simple charity, not to say that it's bad again, but that if your goal is charitable, only charitable, then it doesn't matter that once the project was done, it ended and that it only continues if you keep being charitable. Well said. I would love to hear your sense of what does your respective sector do really well that you do think others could learn from? And I will also follow up with what the heck do you think your sector, your tribe is not doing particularly well that you need help and learning from? There's a lot to be said for the kind of investing that uh, that philanthropy does. It is, first of all, it is disinterested in a way that the private investor, that the for-profit investor is is not. If what you're trying to do is personal, is a, a public good versus personal gain. I think we perform a terrific service when we offer risk capital for the public good in a disinterested way. As a matter of principle, as a matter of social good, I think we really do that well. I think we also, because we're we're so much focused on the public good, we also tend to let to fall in love with our grantees. We tend to fall in love with our hope that they will somehow figure it out and will often not do nearly as well as a private investor will. That's really interesting. Um, Austin, I'm going to come to you and say a similar question. What do you think VC actually does do well that you do have to teach? And what the heck are you guys lost in? The thing that venture is exceptionally good at is underwriting big ideas, right? Like, mm. like we optimize for or have a fairly efficient process for if someone is executing against a particular strategy, adding fuel to that fire to accelerate that opportunity and very quickly reach a goal that would otherwise seem unattainable, particularly in the time frame given. I think it's a, a beautiful thing to watch. It's still messy, you know, in terms of like, uh, you know, when you read the stories on all like the media publications about this startup raising a ton of money and stuff like that, you're like, wow, everybody's probably in there and everything's easy and everybody's confident and everybody knows this is going to work out. When you're on the inside, it feels scattered and it feels like, oh, this is all going to fall apart at any moment. But the reality is even with that into consideration, investors are comfortable with that because they know that that's part of the process. We also provide guidance all the way up. So that's the area where I think that uh, VC stands out as, as being particularly strong. On the weak side, on a personal one, I, I still feel like we're doing particularly poor at inclusion, right? Like it's still a very insular industry where insiders get the opportunities to uh, take advantage of, of that process, which I just described, of bringing new ideas to the world. Part of that is like the venture industry is relatively homogenous or pretty homogenous. And then as a reflection of that, the networks that get funded are, are just the same. I think it was, it's some number like the majority of VCs have gone to like one of three schools. And not surprisingly, those are the three schools that are most represented on from founders that are venture backed as well. I think when you start adding, which is why I'm really excited that there are a lot of new funds that are popping up led by people that come from outside of that network. When you start adding those people, you get different perspectives and you get new money going behind new ideas from people that sit outside of those pockets. I think you do an amazing job at that, uh, Austin. And I think just the very fact that you recognize the filter bubble impact of those decision-making, of the, the, the asking the question, are we all in the room? And the answer is almost always no. But I wanted to say two things about 
philanthropy about working in teams, which we don't do well, but when we do, we've had some spectacular successes and patient capital. In teams, I think one of the best examples of working in team and credit to Darren Walker from Ford Foundation and Miriam Nolan from uh, the Community Foundation of Southeastern Michigan who put this uh, group together, we ended up buying the Detroit Institute of Arts in the bankruptcy. But in terms of beginning a snowball, if you've ever read Getting the Yes, you want to start making side agreements. This was a really big side agreement that then helped push the bigger agreements. One of the things I'm most proudest of is an insight 15 years ago, Miami's distinguishing characteristic is diversity. Three quarters of Miamians were born someplace else. Half were born in another country. We've got We've got a natural diversity. And so our if you're building community, and we do, you've got to find ways to, to unite it. And I thought, well, one of the things we can do is art. So you've got to have patience and 15 years and about $170 million later, which for us is a lot of money. This is a town that thinks of itself, acts as if it is, in fact, an arts and culture kind of capital. It is in the center, it is using its position in the center of North and South as the main meeting place between South and North America. Uh, Art Basel decided to place its uh, biggest fair in the world, biggest art fair in the world here in, uh, in Miami. And we've ended up building an opera house, two brand new museums by Pritzker Prize winning architects, a couple of concert halls, all in the space of what other other communities would take uh, decades to do. It is phenomenal in in a relatively short period of time. And a theme running between, you know, Alberto, what you just shared and, and Austin's earlier point are, I mean, at both ends, whether it's for charitable means, social investment means, pure market returns, they all in some sense have a degree of efficiency to it. I don't know if you know this, but 2020 is a pretty disruptive year. Not sure if you guys are paying attention. And I wonder how much how much that adapts what you guys do. Is it, this is purely just new input, what we do remains the same? Or is there a radical rethink that comes out of a year this disruptive? I'll break it into two phases. COVID hits, market crashes, first call it few weeks when everybody was on lockdown. I think every VC was in triage mode, basically taking inventory of their portfolio companies. And I think as things have settled in, people started to take a a longer term view of really what are the implications of this? There's not a single industry that hasn't been turned completely upside down. And you're, you're rethinking everything that you held true, like as fundamental to this is how this business runs. All that gets thrown out the window and you have to rethink everything from the ground up. And so when that happens, that is when VCs get most excited, because that means that there's an opportunity to create like a long term change. We're talking about, you know, again, we're we're good with big ideas. We're good with things that create like sort of human behavior shifts and and generational shifts. If I hear a a pitch that was the same pitch as what I would have heard pre-COVID, then it's like you're missing the mark. I know that I know that this industry Mm. has been changed. Like, what are the changes? And how do you position yourself to succeed and who can quickly position themselves to grab, like to do a land grab in whatever given industry they're going after to become a category leader by rethinking how the industry itself works. 
I, I think that's great. I, I And we actually, when we first uh, shut the office and started working, obviously, uh, uh, remotely in early March, we uh, first of all did, because we have a, a commitment to 26, specific 26 communities uh, around the United States, we made uh, emergency relief contributions, usually through Red, through United Way or the local community foundation. And that was uh, 11 or $12 million right up, right up front, uh, just to say, okay, let's, let's everybody calm down. Let's, uh, let's, let's start looking at, at this thing. Then we went through a complete portfolio review and basically categorized our, our existing grants into may not make it probably okay and really interesting and the really interesting ones were the ones that we thought had the imagination uh to mm-hmm. come out of this saying ah a crisis troubled waters let's see how we can uh let's see how we can help ourselves here and this is a this is a moment of not just of opportunity but then for institutions we support a moment of permission Imagine the director of a museum who wants to be a very serious person uh, and wants to be perceived as a very serious person who will teach you things and so on. All of a sudden, having with his cell phone, walking through the museum, chatting about why he loves this painting and that one is was painted by that rascal. And all of a sudden, before you know it, this shaky video thing is allowing him to really teach you and engage you in the art and to give you insight into the thing and give you a connection to the art that you simply didn't have before. And before we would have said, what is he doing? Now we have this moment of permission where if it's shaky, it's okay. If it's homemade, it's okay. it's sort of like the beginning of Skype when everybody said, oh, that's it's awful. Tra- oh, isn't it fantastic? Isn't it really cool that we can do this? That's what this moment is about. How do you define impact and have you had to recalibrate it in this year? And and both of you, I'm sure, have quite, you know, at end of 2019, I would think you would have been able to give me a very clear boilerplate answer. This is what our def- definition of impact is. Has that been shook by 2020 or you know, do you have this is impact and, and nothing changes that? No, I think for me, the, the, the value of sheer innovation has increased and may still change because if at some point X months from now, the market, which has been for all its volatility, has been uh, remarkably sanguine in spite of the, the pandemic. If the market suddenly decides, holy cow, we've gone to hell in a handbasket and, and drops radically, we will probably make a a different set of choices that will include institutional support in a way that we're not necessarily doing now. And to clarify on that for you guys, you know, impact would suddenly have more, you could define that by, by just new ideas. We still want things to happen in community, but because it's a moment of permission, we're also saying maybe we're not going to be quite as much of a stickler about the immediate impact, but just show me why you think you're going to increase audience. Show me why you're going to engage more people in whatever it is you're doing in open spaces. We've got a very robust program of reimagining public spaces. That's actually one of the most interesting conversations that we're supporting. People trying to figure out what are the uses of open spaces in a world of social distancing. It's a really very interesting kind of question. 
Austin, you, you have a like a return on equity principle that, you know, to every LP you have to report on any fund. Yeah, I'm kind of curious. Is your answer like nothing changes? That is what impact is. I'm not trying to make my LPs nervous. Or does 2020 make you think differently about what what your definition of impact is? No, everybody who's uh, all of our investors, foundations, corporations, everybody knows what we stand for. And we're driven by economic inclusion. We've never positioned ourselves as an impact fund. We've always viewed it as uh, but with that being said, I think a lot of other people position us as an impact fund, and this is obviously what we're driven by, but we view that, the inclusion, as just a massive opportunity to create our performance, and it's aligned with our values. So if that's impact, then fine, categorize it however we want to. But for us, it's been, I think, as the national conversation started discussing social justice issues much more openly and directly a lot of what we were doing became much more relevant to a lot more people. And so we had a lot of interest in our, in our fund, but the, you know, the story hasn't changed. It's like, this is just what I do. This is what I know. But ultimately we know that it's going to be impactful for the communities that we're, that we're aiming to serve. I wonder if you guys would leave us with a, like a last word on, you know, when go, when they go try to talk a bit now about what are their lessons of, of what VC and philanthropy can, can learn from each other. Is there, is there one takeaway you would want to make sure that folks would would get sure, from your respective sure. perspectives. For me, it would it would be just kind of elaborating on that last point. In that, like, I don't necessarily believe that that you have to have quote unquote concessionary returns to generate the change that you wish to see in the country. I think that there's if if you're thoughtful about what where there are pockets of opportunity, particularly where you can differentiate yourself, then I think that that you could find ways to outperform, which is what we're out to do. And, and that is our conversation. So you don't need concessionary returns to enact change. That last point from Austin stuck with me. So there is a reputation in, in, in all private market investing that if you dare to mention anything in your, your thesis beyond the pure capital efficiency, say that you think about the race and gender of the founders you invest in, some will say that you are accepting concessionary returns, that you are accepting that you might make less than you could. Now, plenty of people call that nonsense, and increasingly so. There is a radical rethink happening in investing that, that this idea of, of, of thinking differently about who and how and when you invest, that, that can just be reframed as part of a good old-fashioned investing thesis that if you look at under-indexed entrepreneurs, just like emerging markets, that that might be an opportunity for above market returns. Okay. So you also mentioned in the interview that crisis gives permission, that both philanthropy and venture capital have an opportunity after a year as disruptive as this one to boldly rethink their work. It sounds good. What, what do, you, do you buy it? What do you think? Well... You know, in philanthropy, a reporting is showing that some foundations are adapting. But I hadn't yet thought that this big rethink can happen in VC. Uh, I certainly associate venture capital as pure, cold tool of capitalism that, you know, just keeps reinforcing what may already be broken. This moment of permission, and VCs like Austin are doing things differently. Right. And and critically, they will push that they don't see it as some philanthropic effort, but a remarkable opportunity at 
better returns. And and a lot of times it is happening at the individual level. Level It can be a VC in a, in a firm with a fund like Austin, but it's also happening in a ton of individual investors. I suspect many of the listeners here. And 2020, 2021, it's a big old <laughs> moment for learning. All right. So Sabrina, do you have, uh, you know, do you leave this episode with the highest level or some big sense of what exactly VC and philanthropy should be learning from each other? Well, I'm left thinking that for my world, philanthropy could take from VC their obsession with investing first in teams over ideas and Mm. in cutting their losses when things aren't working. But bringing in others when an idea seems really powerful. I like that. The sense of investing in team first and and getting in and getting out quicker. Those are themes that I I do think are somewhat real in in private market business investing. And I think it's just the opposite with the sector generosity covers. In some philanthropy, even the most spectacular team is likely to be micromanaged if the idea is just sketchy enough to require a leap of imagination or a leap of faith. I think switching it up would be a chance for inspiring work to solve big problems. As for VC, well, I don't know. I don't report on VC. What do you think? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I've always been very interested in a class of of business investors, of of, you know, venture capitalists for simplicity, that that have you know, will always tell me and, and tell others that they are they're changing the world and they're looking for the biggest, boldest ideas, but if you look at their portfolio, they're focusing a lot of their time on on like marginally better enterprise software. Huh. And in contrast, I, I think there is a kind of philanthropist who is is very seriously trying to change the world. That is very drawn by by the biggest problems, um, and they and they look for the ambition that. They look for ambition that I, I think does outstrip some in VC. And so I, I think I would love if more business investors who claim to want to change the world might listen to the best of philanthropy and, and really the best of foundations who are looking for really serious challenges to big problems. All in all, I want them both to learn from each other. Thank you for your time. <laughs> Anytime, Chris. I appreciate it. Sabrina, all right, that is it. That is the seventh episode of the second season of Off the Sidelines, your investor education podcast. Off the Sidelines is sponsored by Project Entrepreneur, a program by UBS. If you love Off the Sidelines, if you like Off the Sidelines, subscribe. And as always, I implore you, please leave a review. I'm not desperate. It just really helps. Like always, music is by Blue Dot Sessions. Thanks to the reporting of Sabrina Vavulius and the time from Alberto and Austin. This episode was produced by Q9 Creative, including Kevin Schmidlin and Catherine Nails, with post-production by Max Graham. I am technically CEO Chris Wink. We'll be back next week. Bye.